Shopify grows your business no matter how far or big you grow. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. Whether you're selling your fans' next favorite shirt or an exclusive piece of podcast merch, Shopify helps you sell everywhere. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Plus, Shopify's award-winning help is there to support your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash income, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash income now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Frank Lavallo, and this is Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. For each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. This week's conversation is about the novel Advise and Consent by Alan Drury, and I'm joined by our Novel Conversations readers, Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. Katie, Peter, welcome. Thank you. Thanks, Frank. Good to be here. And now, on to our show. Before we start our conversation, let me tell you a little bit about Advise and Consent. Published by Alan Drury in 1959, the Pulitzer Prize-winning novel begins when the President of the United States nominates a controversial and well-known liberal and possible communist sympathizer to be the new Secretary of State. Before the Senate can advise and consent to this nomination, however, the entire Washington political system springs into action. Liberal versus conservative, senator versus senator, the Senate versus the president, and the press versus everyone. In his novel, Alan Drury reveals Washington's intricate political, diplomatic, and social worlds, while also showing us the all-too-human politicians that inhabit those worlds. How timely it all feels, and so I definitely want to talk about some of the timelessness that's in this novel. All right, Peter, let's talk a little bit about some of the main characters in our novel. We've got to start with the president who's made this controversial nomination for his secretary of state. Peter, tell me the name of the president. The president, interestingly enough, is never named. Never. But that's not obvious at all until you've read the book maybe five times. I didn't pick up on it until you earlier pointed it out to us. They've never mentioned the president's name. Interesting. Well, Katie, let me ask you, is the president who's not named a Republican or is he a Democrat? Uh, no, we don't know that either. You kind of have to draw your own conclusions. And the name of the parties are never mentioned in the entire book. In fact, the words Republican and Democrat never appear in this novel. Nope, never. All right, well, I've struck out twice here. Let me ask one more question. What's uh, the approximate date of our novel, Peter? Well, Frank, we don't know that either. We don't know that either? No, there are certain markers that make it pretty obvious, though. Well, tell me about these obvious markers. Uh, Where and when are they? All right. Hanging over all of this is the Cold War and probably the height of the mania about the Cold War. As you undoubtedly know, the Sputnik era was in the very late 50s, which set the stage between the McCarthy era 
and JFK's New Frontier. The entire country is being run by Democrats, by liberals. There was really no room for conservatism in that. So here you have a guy who's writing a book who wants to make it difficult to tell who are the good guys and who are the bad guys. So, Katie, do you agree with the fact that since we don't know if this is a Democratic president or a Republican president, it's hard to know who the good guys and bad guys really are? I agree. And there's characters that we think are good characters who are not necessarily good characters by the end of the book. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about what is in the book. We've mentioned three things that are not in the book, right? We don't know who this president is. We don't know if he's a Republican or a Democrat. And we don't know exactly when this novel takes place. Although we can place it sometime after Sputnik and clearly before we get to the moon. And we do know that the current president was the governor of California. Katie, this book is set up in a very interesting way. It's actually divided into five books. Four of which are named after four senators that are characters in the book and give us a feel for their stories. And the last one, which rounds out the plot and comes to the conclusion, is called Advise and Consent. Which, of course, is the title of our novel. Tell me a little bit about these five books, and then let's start with the first book. Bob Munson's is the first book, and he is the Senate Majority Leader. Seabright Cooley is the second book but they call him Sieb Cooley. He's the character who started out as this difficult guy from South Carolina, and by the end of the book, we were sympathetic towards him and his actions. He's an older senator who's been there a very long time. The third book is Brigham Anderson's book. He's the senior senator from Utah. The fourth book is Orrin Knox's book. He's the senator from Illinois. And then the last book was Advising Consent. So really, Alan Drury tells us, in the way he's divided this novel, who he thinks are the most important characters. Yeah, I would agree with that. Except that for Orrin Knox, I'm not sure he has the weight of the other. All right, well, we'll talk about Orrin when we get to his book. But let's start with the first book of our novel, which is Bob Munson's book. Katie, what do we know about Bob Munson? You mentioned he's the majority leader. Right. And the first thing that happens in the book is he finds out that the president names Bob Leffingwell Secretary of State. And he finds that out? Through the newspaper. Now, wait a minute. The president of the United States names Bob Leffingwell to be his new Secretary of State, and he doesn't tell the majority leader, the leader of his own party? No, he didn't tell him. And, of course, Bob Munson wasn't really happy about that. But he's not only upset that he wasn't told who the new Secretary of State nominee was going to be, he's upset over who the actual nominee is, this Robert Leffingwell. Yes, but I think the more important thing is that Munson's role is carrying water for the White House. They're in the same party. And he needs to get his colleagues, certainly those in his own party for sure, to help. One of the young guys has a great line. He says, you're the great earth father to us all, which... I don't think I've ever heard, you know, Earth Father. But still, you immediately understand what they mean. He is really the father confessor. So he knows that even though personally he might not have a problem with Leffingwell, he obviously knows his Senate colleagues enough to know that it's going to kick up a lot of opposition and that he's going to have to deal with that. Right. So as majority leader, Bob Munson knows that not only will the opposition party be against this nominee, There's members of his own party that are going to oppose it as well. Exactly. And I thought the most interesting part about it was how he's really thinking about the whole country, even though he realizes he's elected by only one state. So there's a wonderful little segment where he gets a call from the chairman of GM. Now, remember, at that time, the saying was, 
What's good for GM is good for the country. We should mention that Bob Munson is the majority leader, but he is the senator from Michigan. Michigan, which again is another signal to a close reader. Republicans didn't come from the auto capital. He's probably a Democrat, but he gets this same call with a similar pressure from both the chairman of GM and the head of the United Auto Workers. What this really helped bring to light is pragmatism, getting each guy to be sure that he was going to do the right thing. Now, he's a classic LBJ type. LBJ is famous for hovering over people and really working with them until they couldn't help but agree. Bob Munson was able to do that, even with the chairman of GM. But Katie, even though this is Bob Munson's book, this is where Robert Leffingwell is introduced to us as well. We're not told what the specific concerns that Bob Munson has with Leffingwell, though. I actually found a passage in the book that covers that, and it appears about a third of the way through the book. We are in Cooley's mind. He's the senator from South Carolina who is very much opposed to Leffingwell. In fact, a lot of the controversy in the book is the fact that people think he's against Leffingwell for personal reasons. Which he is, of course, but there are political reasons as well. Yeah, and one of the other reasons I probably wrote down this quote is, it also gives you a feel for the type of writing Alan Drury does. He uses words that are very specific, very colorful, and the book moves along because of this. But what the senator from South Carolina thinks about Leffingwell is that he has a tendency, and this is the quote, to slide smoothly just between the sharp edges of clashing principles and there find a glib, soft, woozy area of gummy compromise and rationale that effectively blurred everything, enervated all issues, weakened firmness and sapped resolve in a way that hamstrung his own country and made it easier for her enemies to move a few steps farther along the path they had set themselves. I think that kind of sums up what the issues were with Leffingwell on both sides of Congress. I think that both parties were concerned about his ability to be Secretary of State. And both parties are concerned because of his perhaps soft feelings or at least his sympathies with the Soviet Union. Yes. Peter, did you feel that right away as well? I guess I saw even a little more layered thing going on here. I think the real highlight here between Leffingwell, who is kind of painted as a traditional Ivy League, Eastern seaboard, moneyed, intellectual, Kind of foggy bottom and striped trousers. (laughs) Yeah, you got that. CIA coming from the Ivy League, you know, the whole thing. All the things that conservatives hated about these guys. They were all just a little too smooth. Now, on the other hand, his chief nemesis, Cooley, is from the South. He got to Harvard, but on a radically different path. He was essentially without parents. So a wealthy guy in the Deep South paid for him to attend Harvard. Kind of the, you know, brightest boy from the county thing. So Drury is very tricky there. This was Ivy League against Ivy League, if you want to look at it that way. But two very different worlds clashing here. Uh, Shall we say Eastern Seaboard versus Southern Gentlemen? Right. Senator Cooley, we should point out here, is also an incredibly powerful guy at other levels. He is not only president pro tempore of the Senate, which makes him third in line to succeed to the presidency just ahead of the Secretary of State. He's also, even more importantly, chairman of the Senate Appropriations Committee. Now, reporters refer to that as the College of Cardinals. They do? Yeah, because all the other committees decide what to do, and they make plans. 
but none of their work matters a bit until the Appropriations Committee actually gives the authority to go into the purse. But Peter, as Katie mentioned, there was a personal angle to this animosity that Cooley had for Robert Leffingwell that went way beyond the politics. That was a little feint that Drury throws in just to make you think that he's being petty and personal. And the story powers along for about 100 pages. But later on, you find out that Senator Cooley, contrary to what you were expecting, is actually a man of principle. And he wouldn't let something as small as that stand in the way of a good Secretary of State who actually could lead the country during this Cold War. I'm not sure I completely agree with you there, Peter. So what were those personal issues? Well, apparently, in previous testimony on a very obscure committee... Wasn't it something uh, as an inspector of materials, a job that Leffingwell had? Yeah, something like that, right? So Leffingwell apparently gave an answer that was not particularly respectful of Cooley who then ranted and raved about it to his friend, Senator Munson. You know, they live in the same building, and they share a cab on the way in. Katie, it was actually an even stronger reaction than that, I think. Cooley believes Robert Leffingwell called him a liar. And Seab Cooley will never forgive him for that. Exactly. All right, so we are about 160 pages into this almost 600-page novel, and we still aren't really sure what the opposition to Leffingwell is going to be. But we do know that we have the first two books, Senator Munson's book and Senator Cooley's book. Senator Cooley and Senator Munson have to make a decision on how they're going to handle this nomination. Obviously, as we said, Senator Cooley is opposed. Senator Munson is for. They're both of the same party. Katie, what happens next? Well, we move into the third book, which is Brigham Anderson's book. And Brigham Anderson is the senior senator from Utah. And he's going to start a testimony on this nomination of Bob Leffingwell as Secretary of State. And he's appointed to a committee, and the committee starts arguing. We get a lot of back and forth, hearing what different people have to say about different things. And we learn a lot about the senior senator from Utah, Brigham Anderson. Tell me a little bit about Brigham Anderson. You said he's the senior senator, but he's only 37 years old. Right. He's young, and he has a young family. He has a wife and children, and you get a little feel that he's got some issues in his marriage. We learn about the issues between the husband and wife, and we learn about his concern about spending time with the family. You know, it made me think about the fact today people are juggling careers and families, and I didn't really think about the fact that they were dealing with that back in the late 50s, early 60s. I guess I thought that was a new problem. So I was kind of intrigued by that. So, Peter, Brigham Anderson is only 37. How does he become the senator from Utah, never mind the senior senator from Utah? Well, he's a war hero for a start. He's kind of a classic American young man who moves ahead quickly because of his great people skills. I understand you have a quote that you wanted to read about his experiences in the Air Force. Yes, and this is another place where we are anchored in time. We know that he's 37 now. And yet there's a reference here to World War II when he served about 15, 18 years before the book. So he talks about how he was, to quote, one of those officers exercising authority with an appealing grin and an air of being born to it, who enlisted men worship and superiors marked for speedy promotion, end quote. And then Drury really leads you into how, once he gets into politics, it's the same kind of meteoric rise, but for all the right reasons. And he becomes the senior senator, of course, when the older senator from Utah dies. And now he's the senior senator at 37 years old. 
And he's somebody who is junior in every other way, and yet is instantly trusted by other senior guys that have been there for you know, 30 years longer than he has. And that's why the two leading members of this party, again, we're not sure which party, though I think we all agree it's probably the Democratic Party, but these two leaders of the party, Senator Bob Munson and Senator Cooley, appoint him to hold the hearings on the Leffingwell nomination. So he chairs the subcommittee that's going to vote on passing this nomination to the full committee and then to the full Senate. The thing that really distinguishes him in everybody's mind is he's the one senator who really can't be bought, that neither side can bribe or intimidate, and that he's the one guy that's going to do whatever it takes all right down to losing his place of leadership in the Senate to do what he thinks is right. Well, let me ask you, Peter, up to this point, do you have any concerns about Brigham Anderson? No. No, we talked earlier about how many plot twists there are. Now, he's the guy in whom there probably are more plot twists and surprises than anybody else in the entire book. Katie, how about you? He's about to chair these hearings and take testimony on the Leffingwell nomination. Bob Munson is not concerned. Senator Cooley's not concerned. Do you have any concerns? I had no concerns at this point in the book, either. All right, we're going to take a break here, and when we come back, we're going to go into this hearing room and find out exactly what questions they have for Bob Leffingwell and what Leffingwell's responses are to those questions. Right now, you're listening to Novel Conversations. We'll be right back. You've got questions. We've got answers. Business leadership, ownership, and sales can be challenging. Tune into the Accelerate Your Business Growth podcast to learn from the world's experts. Join me, your host, Diane Helbig, as I chat with people who have expertise in various areas of business. You'll enjoy the lively conversations that are focused on providing you with the ideas, tips, and suggestions you need to realize greater success. Get what you need for your business, when you need it, from the people who have the answers. Accelerate Your Business Growth is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network and is available on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. Welcome back to Novel Conversations. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and today I'm having a conversation about the novel Advise and Consent, written by Alan Drury in 1959, and I'm joined in my conversation today by Katie Smith and Peter Toomey. Okay, Katie, Peter, when we took our break, Senator Brigham Anderson from Utah is about to start his hearings and take testimony from Robert Leffingwell, the nominee for Secretary of State. It goes very well for Robert Leffingwell at first, doesn't it, Peter? You know, it does, and in a very modern way, too. This Ivy League candidate, with the full support of the White House, with all the backing from the press corps, bats away hard questions like flies. He's obviously been prepared. Peter, I know you have a quote that you want to read that sort of embodies the spirit under which these hearings are going to be heard. And what this book is about. Now, near the beginning of the book, Senator Munson is recalling that the fellow who you know was going to chair these hearings, Senator Anderson, during an earlier hearing, had remarked kind of bitterly during debate, to quote, We deal with men as they are reputed to be and not with men as they really are, close quote. So that is an important scene setter because this is all about reputation versus reality. That quote, in fact, will later on bite Brigham Anderson in a deadly way. Peter, good quote. And Katie, we should mention that the press makes a big appearance during this time as well. 
Most of them appear to be for Robert Leffingwell, and they're making their editorials clear about that as well. That's correct. And we get a real sense that the press influences public opinion, influences what the senators know and what they don't know. And we get a lot of side-talking with the press. In addition, I think it's really interesting, one of the devices that the writer uses, he doesn't call the reporters by their name. It's Newsweek or the AP. They speak with the authority of their company, not as individuals. Exactly. And to me, the press is a Greek chorus. It's a Greek chorus throughout the novel. They're constantly talking at each other, to each other, peppering each other. But the main thing is that there's very little disagreement. Katie, as you mentioned, the press is really united for Leffingwell. There's very little press dissent for this nomination. That's correct. All right, so let's get into this hearing. We have Leffingwell. He answers the questions. He hits all their talking points. Things go very well for him. The second day of the hearings, things change. Katie, tell me a little bit about the call they get from Herbert Gelman. Senator Cooley took a call the night before from Herbert Gelman, who proclaimed that he's got some information. And then he came into the hearing the next day, and he told them about a secret society that were communist sympathizers and claimed that our candidate for Secretary of State, Leffingwell, was a part of that. Peter, this is a bombshell. Automatic disqualifier for the head of the State Department in the middle of the Cold War. The interesting thing we haven't mentioned here is that this guy Leffingwell is really the president's intended instrument for a rapprochement to the Soviets and to kind of start fresh again. The historical period here is Khrushchev banging his shoe at the podium of the U.N., along with Sputnik, and Nixon, the vice president, at his famous kitchen debate with Khrushchev. So there certainly was an attempt to put a human face on these enemies. That's right. Let's be clear about this. The uh, the conservative opposition to Leffingwell in the first place was this man might be too soft on the communists. He might sympathize with the Soviet Union. Turns out maybe he is a communist. When he was at the University of Chicago, he ran a communist cell. Now, of course, when you get to the detail, the question is, well, if it did happen, it was a brief window in his life when he was younger. Yeah, but Katie, you know, Leffingwell doesn't say this was a youthful indiscretion. I was searching for some information. I was trying to learn. Uh, you know, I was at the University of Chicago. We were experimenting with philosophies. That's not what he does. Uh, what does he do? He just denies it. Denies it, denies it, denies it. You know, damn the torpedoes, full speed ahead. Right. It's going to be a showdown. And the showdown starts the very next day, and it starts with Herbert Gelman. The forces that are arrayed for Leffingwell immediately bring out the ammunition on Gelman. It comes out at that point that this witness who's talking about the communist sympathies of our candidate Leffingwell had a couple mental breakdowns and was fired from his previous job by Leffingwell himself. So he's discredited as a witness. So, Peter, the press basically paints this guy as a crazy man. But Senator Cooley, he's got one more card up his sleeve. The senator finds the other member of this communist cell. And at that point, it becomes impossible, even for the White House, to push this thing through. But even faced with proof that Leffingwell lied about being in this communist cell, was in fact in this communist cell, the president decides he is going to push on. So the entire weight of the government moves from a defensive position to an offensive position against the one person who's blocking this, which was Senator Brigham Anderson. Essentially, what happens is Bob Munson and the president get together and they decide to call in every chip, 
every favor owed, every arm they can twist, and they more or less convince all the members of their party that we still need to vote for this guy. Unfortunately, the only member of the party that they can't pressure is Senator Brigham Anderson. So apparently, there's no lever to pull with this Senator Anderson. Nothing bad on him. He's a Boy Scout from Utah who's lived a perfect life, according to the reputation. And then, by a stroke of luck, a bit of information falls into the president's hands, and that gives him all the power of Senator Anderson that he's ever going to need. Amazingly, just when ammunition is needed against Senator Anderson, an incriminating photograph that eventually ends up in the president's hands. Peter, an incriminating photograph of who? Well, it's certainly suggestive, and later a means for proof that Senator Anderson, while he was in Hawaii in the Air Force, he had an intimate encounter with another male, which obviously is all the offense that the White House would need to finally get something over him. Now, Peter, for me, this seemed, uh, I don't know, too serendipitous. This seemed too easy. All of a sudden, just when the president needs a photo to go after Senator Anderson, there's the photo in his hands. I don't know, Katie, does, does that ring true for you? You know, it really did seem pure fabrication that this could have happened. But on the other hand, it didn't bother me because I really liked the writing. I liked what he was doing with this. Peter, this is a well-plotted novel, but I still feel that this incident just does not ring true. It's just a little too fictitious for me. Well, I always tend to think that in certain ways, fiction is easier to conceive because if you don't have the facts that you need, you invent them. There's something that subsequently happens to Senator Anderson that, to me, is much more of a false note. So, yeah, this one didn't really stick out that way. I agree with you on that point. Okay. I think I know which scene both of you are talking about, but we'll get there in a moment. Uh, right now, what I want to know is, what does the president do with this photograph of Senator Brigham Anderson in, a, in an incriminating pose with another man? The president has a twofold strategy. He's getting ready to set a trap through a fellow senator to spring this evidence on the Senate and embarrass Senator Anderson and to force him out. And at the same time, he needs to forestall a quick vote turning away the nominee. So he has to stall for time. He invites Anderson in for cigars and drinks to take care of it. But Anderson is not going to be moved. But he also understands that he needs some help from some senior people that know the president's tricks. He will only take that meeting on condition that he's joined by two senior people that he trusts, Vice President Harley Hudson and Senate Majority Leader Bob Munson. And in this meeting, the president lies to all three of them. He does. Only the two senior guys have a sense that something's not right. The junior fella is pretty well duped. Even though he goes in being a skeptic, thereby setting the scene for even deeper effect on him and a worse shock. And then what's the second prong of the president's attack? Well, the president, being a good politician, knows he's not in the position to go before the country and use some of this dirt himself. Of course not. Yeah, yeah. So he has to take the high road. And like all presidents, he has somebody doing his bidding in the Senate. He finds the instrument in Senator Fred Van Ackerman from Wyoming, who is a guy that'll do whatever it takes to get a little higher on the totem pole. And Katie, Alan Drury gives the junior senator from Wyoming, Fred Van Ackerman, a Senator Joseph McCarthy moment. At the rally of Leffingwell supporters, Van Ackerman goes before all of them and holds up a piece of paper and says, I have proof that Senator Anderson is not who we think he is. And again, that goes back to Peter's quote, that the reputation is more important than the reality. 
Right. You know, the charge is more important than the substance of the charge. Well, what is the immediate effect of this charge that Senator Fred Van Ackerman makes to the world? As the White House and everybody else associated with the White House well knew, it would just take the mere suggestion of this damaging bit of information for Anderson to completely fold. And he does. But Peter, Senator Anderson does more than fold. And this is the scene I think that you have trouble with. Yeah. He commits suicide. It's almost a ritual suicide. The revelation was, it was such a traumatic thing. And Katie, how about you? I know you weren't satisfied with this result either. No. I knew that he cared a lot about his daughter. I knew that he cared a lot about what he stood for. And I guess I thought he was the kind of person who would get through it. And this was the easy way out. And I wouldn't have seen him doing that. And as we can imagine, the suicide deals a body blow to not only the Senate, but to the body politic and also to the president himself. Everybody's upset by this, but the president is not going to have any defense. And so we see him fall apart. He actually ends up having a stroke and he dies. All of a sudden, the vice president figures out that he's going to be the president. He's been kind of struggling with the idea of becoming president. Peter, how do things change when Harley Hudson becomes president of the United States? All of a sudden, the kind of man that we think a civics textbook would say should be president becomes president. He's a guy whom everyone trusts. He's not a braggart. He's not tricking and scheming. He's a deeply good man that everyone trusts. Now, we haven't talked very much about Harley Hudson, the vice president. The Harley Hudson you just described is not really the Harley Hudson that we meet early on in this novel. And that's where the reputation versus reality thing kicks in, where this is a guy that had a lousy reputation. He was a laughingstock. And yet the guy himself was such that people trusted him. And the cream rose to the top at the end of the novel. How does Harley Hudson wrap up our novel? Well, of course, Leffingwell was defeated, so the first thing the new president does is come up with his own nomination. And he nominates one of the fellow senators, Orrin Knox, who's confirmed by a voice acclaim. And that's not all the new president does. He quickly signals that he is above politics and that he's going to heal the wounds of the nation by announcing that he's not going to run for another term. He also has to heal the wounds of the party. And he does that by going to the man that everybody trusts, Bob Munson, who, out of true moral qualms about his small role in the suicide, has resigned. Now, that only stood for a few days until the entire Senate essentially insisted that its Father Earth come back and take his old role as Father Confessor by way of being Majority Leader, which he does. Okay, with that wrap-up, I want to know what made this a book worth reading for both of you. But I also want to mention briefly, before we get into this last segment, that this is a 600-page novel. We've tried to give you a synopsis of the plot and characters, but we've left out so much that you've got to go into this novel and read it for yourself. In fact, we didn't even have time to mention that the Russians are on the moon. And I'm not going to say anything more about that because I do want you to go and read this novel for yourself and find out how the Russians got to the moon. But now, Peter, tell me what made this book worth reading for you. First of all, there's luminous writing in it. I support Katie's early comment. Alan Drury's use of words is exquisite. This book's value is in the way that someone who was watching very closely how power works brought it to life in a way that is timeless. There are lots of touches that 
anchor it in a particular era. But there are an awful lot more whole portions that sound as though they're ripped right from today's headlines, which is frankly almost chilling to me. There's a whole conversation about renouncing preventive war. There are complaints about how nominees get tarred reputations, and that'll keep good nominees from public service. You hear that all the time. In fact, I have a quote that I want to read, and I've got to tell you, this quote by Leffingwell reminds me of something that, I don't know, General Michael Flynn could have easily have said. What is the position you have put me in here, Mr. Chairman? What will they say now when I meet them in conference? Oh, yes, they'll say, this is the man that the Senate smeared. This is the man, the highest legislative body in his country. Yes, in many ways, the greatest legislative body in the world has attacked and slandered and attempted to destroy. That is what they will say. And how many years do you think it will be before I can meet them as an equal after this shameful, shabby episode? I ask you, Mr. Chairman, I ask you. That's part of what made this a novel worth reading for me, the prescience that Alan Drury showed. I guess the more some things change, the more they stay the same. Katie, what made this a book worth reading for you? In this book, as Peter mentioned, the writing was spectacular in a number of places, and the description of Washington, the way Washington works. One of the quotes that I wrote down was, Washington takes them like a lover and they are lost. And this quote is a comment on us. The quote continues, The golden legend crumbled overnight. The fall began. The heart went out of it. Two complacent, uncaring people awoke to find themselves with the winds of the world howling around their ears. End quote. And there were themes throughout this book, comments on the Cold War and the way the government works on the press. Katie, I'm glad you mentioned the press. Uh, I have a quote here that I've got to read, and as soon as I read it, I knew I had to bring it up at this discussion. It's actually a series of headlines from the newspapers. Munson quits his majority leader in protest at Anderson's death. Says President hounded senator from Utah. Declares hands off on Leffingwell. Refuses re-election. Re-election seems certain. The press wants it both ways, and they continue to get it both ways. Peter, do you have a quote you want to read? You know, I think the book is really about, well, after Alan Drury takes you through this incredible saga— He really has this wonderful civic prayer about the vitality and the strength of democracy and how it can outlast all this foolishness of man because it was so well constructed. And Drury talks at nearly the end of the book, putting the words in Munson's mouth, really musing aloud as an omniscient thinker, I quote, The system had its problems, and it wasn't exactly perfect. And there was, at times, much to be desired. And yet, on balance, admitting all its bad points and assessing all the good, there was a vigor and a vitality of strength that nothing, he suspected, could ever quite overcome, however evil and crafty it might be. End quote. And that really is what the book, at the end, leaves you with. That the system is going to prevail. You know, it's got a reputation for being a paranoid Cold War thriller, but as we've mentioned before, it is so well-written and believable, it really can relate to us today. It is so well done, so knowing of the eternal verities of man, that I think it ends up really being a timeless classic. It can speak just as well to what's going on today as it did in its day. Indeed, the verities of man and politicians and American politics. You've got it. 
All right, let's end our discussion of the novel Advise and Consent by Alan Drury. I want to thank both of my guest readers today, Peter Toomey and Katie Smith. I hope you both really enjoyed the book and the discussion. Thank you, Frank. We certainly did. Yeah, thanks for having us. Absolutely. You're very welcome. And once again, I want to thank my readers, Katie and Peter. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Novel Conversations is a production of Evergreen Podcasts. For more information about upcoming Novel Conversations, you can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Or go to our website at evergreenpodcast.com. And if you like the podcast, don't forget to leave us a review. It really helps. Novel Conversations is produced by Julie Fink, and our audio engineer is Sean Rule Hoffman. A special thanks to our executive producer, Joan Andrews, and our researchers, Claudia Toller and John Atour. And I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next time, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Hi, I'm Emma. And I'm Joe. And, and we're, we're the, the Professional, professional book, book Nerds. Nerds. Two Mondays a month, we interview authors and talk about their upcoming books, what drives them, and their go-to order at the cafe. On Thursdays, we share recommendations and dive into topics readers face, like how do I actually read the books on my to-be-read list? You can find the Professional Book Nerds podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn more about us? Our website is professionalbooknerds.com, and you can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok at ProBookNerds. We hope you'll come and listen, and as always, happy, happy reading. reading! This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.